there. My name is Tom Chick, and you are listening to Quarter of the Three Games Podcast, or not Games Podcast, Movie Podcast. Oh, dear. For the video game Margaret. Uh, I am joined this week by Christian Malinsky. Uh, no, actually, since it's the plural, it's bravi. <laughs> and with a Margaret video gaming tagline, Kelly Wand. God, are you there? It's our podcast on Margaret. <laughs> uh, you really bloomed that one out of the water. <laughs> oh, God, Tom. I should confess I'm on cold medication. I don't know if that exonerates me. From ah, uh, that explains much to me, <laughs> You won't be on it forever. This podcast is going to be awful. Uh, we well, we'll see. Let's let's see where yeah. this goes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Tom said optimistically. <laughs> Which Dingus- one are you on? That's the real question about Margaret. I have cold medication. Yeah. I I just take like Theraflu. Yeah. I just nuke it. It's like you know Theraflu is like a cocktail of oh. antihistamine and acetylmethamphetamine and <laughs> things like that. <laughs> Yeah, that's the only way to be sure. Exactly, right, right. Uh, That's fun. I'm kind of jealous now. But nobody cares about my cold, because they are here because we are talking about Margaret. Speaking of nobody caring, I don't think anybody saw this. Uh, We are going to spoil it for you in a little bit, but you're safe for now. We're not going to spoil anything just yet. Before we spoil anything about Margaret, Dingus, why don't you tell folks a little bit about what this movie is? Don't give anything away. Okay. Yeah, draw the line at that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, this, this week we saw Margaret, a 2011 American drama movie. Mm. Uh, and I'm so mad that it's a 2011 American drama movie. Spoiler. Spoiler. Uh, about why teenagers should rule the world. <laughs> it was written and directed by Kenneth Lonergan and mm. produced by Anthony Mingala and Sidney Pollack. Oh, yeah. See, that's what happens when you let a movie sit for so long. The producers, the producers die. Yeah. Oh, that's what happens. It stars Anna Paquin, Jeannie Berlin, Jay Smith Cameron, Mark <laughs> Ruffalo, Kieran Culkin, and Stephen Adley Gurgis. Mark. Goret is rated R for strong mm. language, sexuality, some drug use, and disturbing images, but apparently not nudity. Which and apparently not teenage smoking. I think that they should call that out. Yeah. Kelly Wan, aren't you with me on that? And you teenage- got your R. What, do you know, what else do you want? I just and- want them to specify that it's R because kids smoke in this movie. Strong and they drink is a euphemism for smoking cigarettes. And they drink alcohol in restaurants with their parents, which is weird, too. That could have just... I saw none of that happen, and nothing happened. Could have been grape juice, Dingus. We don't know. Uh, all right, so uh, Margaret was released, as Dingus mentioned, last year. Uh, it, it has a sort of a storied history in terms of finally making it to screen. It was actually shot in 2005. And it was held up for six years due some due to some legal complications between the director and writer Kenneth Lonergan and Sony. Uh, it was eventually it eventually had a very very limited theatrical release last year. It no Dingus, you were on the nominating committee for SAG last year, right? Yeah. You were sent all kinds of movies from all the studios that wanted to like highlight a particular performance. You must have gotten a screener copy of Margaret, right? Absolutely not. Huh, interesting. Thanks, Sony. 
Yeah, thanks so much, jerks. Uh, get this, Margaret's box office take, not its opening weekend, but for the entirety of its theatrical run, <clears throat> ready for this, $46,000. Oh, good God, are you kidding me? <laughs> That's the uh, official word there. What's uh, our takeaway from that? That Sony buried it. Uh, That's not like them. Yeah. Well, you know what? It's like firing Sam Raimi and, ge- and getting Mark Webb to reboot after Sam Raimi just made you a billion dollars. That's right. Same studio, isn't it? Huh. What do you think of that? Right. <laughs> See a pattern. Uh, now, if you think that's something, get this. Metacritic, which takes the average rating for reviews that have numerical ratings, uh, the average for Margaret on Metacritic, 61. What? That's right. Rotten Tomatoes, which just looks at the percentage of reviews that are positive. 71% of the reviews of Margaret are positive. Uh, there you I go. don't want to hear any more numbers ever again. Let's, let's, yeah, let's be done with numbers. Kelly Wan, why don't you, if you're listening and you haven't seen Margaret, I'm pretty sure that the three of us on this podcast think you should see it. Uh, so maybe you should bail right now because we're going to start spoiling it. Uh, if you are just joining us because you went and watched it and came back and listened to the podcast... <laughs> And left it on pause for right. three hours plus, <laughs> then went right back to your computer immediately afterwards. Then we'd like to welcome you back. Exactly. Uh, that's how we design this. Technology in action. Uh, Kelly Wan, speaking of action, why don't you uh, give us a little blow-by-blow account of what happens. And I, I don't envy they you They cut the time. blow scenes. Those are on the cutting room floor, the cut I saw. Um, I don't think you know what blow is. <laughs> There were there were blow scenes. I'm from the streets, Tom. It's like we have fifty different. Uh, it means fifty different things. It's like the opposite of snow for Eskimos. There are other parallels. <laughs> Kelly Wan, kill. Uh, so Kelly Wan, what would you call a synopsis of the events of the movie Margaret? I'd call it a margaropsis. <laughs> I'll have one of those. <laughs> I'll have what she's having. Up. Whenever I do an opsis on a serious movie like Winter's Bone, people always post comments like, good show, laudable effort, with like an air of pity. I, that I, wasn't I, part of the opsis. No, no, I, thought, we <laughs> thought, <laughs> we thought you had started. <laughs> no, I know that sounded prepared. It was just that thoughtful. Um, so, yeah, you want to hear the opsis? <laughs> you didn't do a synopsis for Spider-Man out of respect for the material. Yes. Uh, you apparently don't have the same Transcended the opposite. Right. right. Yeah. You, you don't feel that way, I presume, about Margaret. Well, I saw the two-and-a-half-hour cut. Mm-hmm. There's a three-hour one that mm-hmm. I didn't see. But I wasn't going to watch three hours to get 30 minutes. I'll just, like, fill in the blanks myself. Well, I but, think there, there will be people on this podcast who can fill in some of those blanks for you, by the way. Hmm. Let's keep... Let's focus on the movie for now, though. <laughs> Margaropsis. This is, by the way, the opsis for the two-and-a-half-hour version, so there'll be some jump cuts in the mid-sentence, and then I'll do, like, a three-hour opsis when I see the full movie. Again, not not part of the opsis, another observation, so Tom can chime in now if he has a thought to share. Okay, here you go. Here's my thought. Rock and roll. Margaropsis. <laughs> not only is Anna Paquin super horny, this movie was shot nine years ago, so she's 17 again. Yay! Sure hope nothing horrifyingly gruesome happens in the first 10 minutes to cock block my erection. 
Speaking of Anna Paquin's geometry, one of her teachers is Matt Damon, which means she doesn't have a thing for her other teacher played by an actor named Matt, Hugh Broderick. Matt Damon gets on her ass, but not like that yet, for obviously getting someone else to do her homework. She's all, I did some of it, the ones with all the wrong answers. He gives up. She goes to meet the student who helped her by getting her caught in a B-. minus. He's in the friend zone. Heads up young males in classes with manipulative Anna Paquin types. Ask them out before you do their math homework, especially if, like me, you're even worse at math than they are. <laughs> My going rate was generally second base in exchange for a midterm. No refunds, but like Bradbury, I came of age in a simpler time. Anna Paquin is at least half Jewish, but still decides she needs a cowboy hat to fit in better in New York City. She tries one store, but they only have red ones with French tickler feathers. Fucking New York. Luckily, she sees a bus driver named Mark Ruffalo, don't know the actor's name, wearing one while he drives. Back when this movie was shot, bus drivers got to pick what kind of hat to wear. So when he shuts the doors in her face, she chases alongside the bus for a few blocks, either to ask him where he got it or fuck him for it. Somehow, no one on the bus or the sidewalk, including Alice and Janney, notices her. And I guess he's driving slowly enough to keep up the conversation with her, but still too fast for Alice and Janney to dodge out of the way or anyone else near Alice and Janney to be in the shot. But 30 minutes of studio-mandated edits notwithstanding, he runs a red light and over Alice and Janney. And even though it's the middle of the day and hundreds of people are around, no one notices it was a red light except Anna Paquin. The bus cuts off Alice and Janney's leg. Anna Paquin feels bad about this, so she shoves through the crowd and cradles Alice and Janney's bloody torso. While everybody stands around ignoring Mark Ruffalo, and he does nothing except look uneasy for the rest of the movie. Alice and Janney's all, What the fuck just happened? I thought I was the fifth billed actress. Have I been on Lost yet? <laughs> She's confused, see. Not Anna Paquin goes, I know you're confused, but I have the same name as your daughter, and it's not Margaret, even though the movie's called that, and you're dying right now because I really wanted a cowboy hat from the Hulk. <laughs> the best thing, way to punk a dying person. Um, <clears throat> Allison Janney's all, please, your knee's crushing what's left of my pancreas. Also, would you mind telling that devoid of ethnicity guy there to stop putting leeches on my stump? And the dude's all, look, lady, I'm not a doctor, I'm a leech salesman. Try to relax. Alice and Janney dies, which makes her visible to her son, Haley Joel Osment. JK. Since Mark Ruffalo's cute and shooting her panicky glances while he talks to a cop, Anna Paquin tells them the light was green. Alice and Janney died for nothing. Anna Paquin goes home drenched in blood. Her mom takes one look at her and goes, were you hitting on Matt Damon again? Her mom's an actress in a play in which she just takes bows with the rest of the cast for two hours. It's the toast of Broadway. She's being stalked by Raul Julia, who's French, but playing a Spaniard from Panama. He brings her flowers after every show and says shit like, Madre du, that is the best three-hour rendition of the good ship lollipop I've heard in nearly <laughs> That's the last accent I'm ever going to do. I'm never gonna no, do it's another. not. It's too dumb. They're too dumb, even for the offices. Accents. Unfortunately, Anna Paquin's bourgeoisie mom only likes white impressionists who do bobcat goldplate voices, super loud in crowded restaurants, while everyone at neighboring tables tries to ignore them. <laughs> Tip for Raul Julia. Get her digits for the second date before you spend the whole meal droning on about your company's Ethernet cables. <laughs> no one's going to get these jokes because no one's seen, seen this movie. I'm so bummed. Anyway. 
You're right. Nobody's getting these jokes. I know. It's depressing me. I know. Oh, really? It's like that? Listen to Tom. <laughs> there, I win. Anna Paquin goes to school. A friend of hers we've barely seen or will see due to 30 minutes of studio-mandated edits complains that they've drifted apart. In her class on reading aloud from books, Matthew Broad <laughs> as a student... Really? That's the one? Uh, Matthew Broderick tells his students he's going to, quote, hog the part of King Lear again. Just checking. Despite all this excitement, Anna Paquin's so bummed that even moping around New York with her astonishing rack jiggling in slow motion between ranks of perplexed black dudes just isn't as slow as it used to be back before she used them to accidentally kill Allison Janney. Raul Julia takes Anna Paquin's mom to go see that Spider-Man opera where all the actors got injured. <laughs> plays don't have CG. Yet. Why do they got to say bravi and brava, complains the mom, and nobody backed me up when I did the wave. He laughs. We are clearly compatible on many levels. Apundanza. Right, that's the last act. But her mom's not really into Raul Julia. So when she gets home, she starts masturbating in the dark. Anna Paquin, who thinks she's only fast asleep, and therefore fair game, barges in without knocking, so Mom asks her to come back in just a second, so she has time to grow flaccid. Anna Paquin knocks again, and her mom goes, Come in. Sidebar, next time somebody tries a knock-knock joke on me, that's going to be my response. Shut that shit right down. They go to see an opera starring Divine. She calls her dad in L.A., who wants her to come to Mexico to ride horses with him for a year. Her dad keeps pestering her about her boyfriend situation, so she calls her coke dealer and asks him to come over and deflower her. He's vaguely interested and writes her address down on his wall next to all the rest. That takes me back. He comes over, and instead of instantly crushing nubile Anna Paquin against him on first sight, he gets fascinated by a bookcase, and of all the tomes present, selects a 1,200-page one on the Third Reich. <laughs> I might read this while we fuck, he yawns. She's all, uh, considering what we're about to do, shouldn't we feel more excited? He's all, not the way I do it. Got any beer? One jump cut later, Anna's all, wow, those are the greatest 18 seconds ever, but aren't you supposed to put the condom on before you come inside me? Wish I'd <laughs> wish that took me back. She gets the contact info for attending a seance slash funeral for Alice and Janney by stalking one of her relatives or friends. I think it's a friend, even though they look kind of like each other. And listens as Alice and Janney's cousin <laughs> or friend goes. Now, I want to tell you the story how me and Alice and Janney first met. I was 21. She was 19. Either there's another edit here, or she doesn't say anything else for an hour. But at some point, everybody leaves. I assume without Anna Paquin mentioning how she knew the deceased. I guess that'd be kind of a buzzkill. Anna Paquin has a nightmare that her mom's staring at her. But luckily, Alice and Janney's ghost shows up in the shower and uses some <laughs> blood from the faucet to comfort her. According to a billboard she walks past, her mom's in a play called Sold Out that's considered quite controversial. <laughs> Thank you, Dingus. You and me. She goes to Mark Ruffalo's house to muddy the waters. His wife, suspicious of her teary-eyed appearance on her porch, and DeBoot looks disconcertingly like Matt Damon's wife, who later has pretty much the same experience when Anna Paquin sandbags later to hit him up retroactively for abortion money. Even though neither the abortion nor her sleeping with Damon are in this cut. Maybe in this cut her character's just a compulsive liar. 
<laughs> she goes to the police to convince them to punish Mark Ruffalo more. She's all, I want to change my story because it's the middle of the movie. The cops are, well, honey, it's not manslaughter unless he was fucking you while he was driving. And even then, all we could do is write him up for a busted taillight. She has lunch with Alice and Janney's friend, Lenny Kravitz. Wait, <laughs> Alice and Janney's friend and Lenny Kravitz. Sorry. Who's a lawyer. Kravitz. He tells them they'd have a better case legally if Alice and Janney had had both legs cut off and been doing missionary work at the bottom of the ocean when the bus hit her. Then he looks nervously at the waiter like he's been thinking about asking for extra vinaigrette. <laughs> In the longer version, I bet it makes sense, Anna Paquin gets back together with her hot friend for one last scene. They smoke pot in the park. Matthew Brodrick is passing by and goes, Hey, come on, girls. Drug use is inappropriate before a class on William Burroughs. They laugh at him for calling a bong a bee. Lenny Kravitz finds out Mark Ruffalo's bus has hit 15 other character actresses while flirting with a 17-year-old pedestrian asking about his cowboy hat in just the past week, so it turns out they have a case after all. He gets them a white lawyer, and Allison Janney's gold-digging cousin shows up from Arizona to give us someone to root for. Hannah Paquin calls Allison Janney's friend Strident, so they break up. She goes to Matt Damon's apartment and seduces him by firing up a cigarette and taking her top off. At the door, he's all, that was fucking awesome, although you're a little old for me. She's all, don't worry, I won't tell anyone, just text them. He's all, you want to ride the handlebars of my bike again? She's all, you're sounding like a little kid. I'll see you in school. Then she fumbles with the doorknob for a few seconds. Anna Paquin gets into debates about 9-11 with a hot Syrian chick in her class. Which positions does the latter prefer? All of them. Oh, my God. I know. Anna Paquin goes on her mom's date and gets Alice and Janney's friend to rehash this same argument with Raul Julia, which ends in disaster when the friend flings her water in his face. He's all, that's the typical Jewish response to everything. Water. It's hard to finish a meal or bus ride when Alice and Anna Paquin's around. Raul Julia calls Anna Paquin's mom to apologize. He's all, instead of Jewish response, I probably should have said Zionist. But if you wish to break up with me over an adjective, you wouldn't be the first. She does prove to be the last, though, because he has a heart attack. <laughs> they go to his funeral, at which his son Rodrigo tells Anna Paquin's mom, my dad wanted to marry you. Anyone, actually. Anna Paquin's mom turns to Anna Paquin and goes, speaking of which, as I mentioned during the eulogy, now that he's dead, I have an extra opera ticket. Want to go with? I know you said you hate opera, but that was at the beginning of the movie. Anna Paquin's all sure. Although firing Mark Ruffalo was all Anna Paquin wanted to avenge Alice and Janney's death, want something. He doesn't get fired, although in his defense she tries to distract him again while he's driving by her one night, and this time out he doesn't kill anybody. Statistically, if you throw in Raul Julia, he's learned more than Anna Paquin has. Instead of hiring a hitman to take Mark Ruffalo out for probably 30 of the 300 Gs, Anna Paquin and her mom go to the opera version of Foul Play. Since it's now the end of the movie, they hug it out so tearfully that the mom's nemesis sitting in a row behind them stands up and goes, Bravi, bravi, bravu, brava. But this time it's cool. The end. All right. Sometimes one of my favorite things about the synopsis is Kelly Wan's interpretation of events and who characters yeah. are to I each other. I saw the shorter head. <laughs> I love that you thought that was Matt Damon's wife. Uh, <laughs> Wait, that was Mark Ruffalo's wife with Matt Damon? She was another teacher. Uh, she's in a scene teaching like gym class, I think. That was the alien head. Uh, that doesn't matter. That may as well be his wife. Maybe they're married. Which yeah. Me at this point. Maybe. Maybe Could she be. doesn't live with him in that sublet with all of his bikes. 
could be. Yeah. Uh, so, Dingus, did you see the extended version of this? Yes, I'm going to say yes. Okay. Uh, all right, so going around the table, uh, Kelly Wand, did this movie work for you? I only saw the short version. Mm-hmm. The two-and-a-half-hour cut, right? So so what, what happened was, uh, in his contract, in order for him to have final cut, Kenneth Lonergan had to submit a cut that was no longer than, I think, 150 minutes, two-and-a-half hours. Uh, he apparently did no such thing, and the, the uh, studio wouldn't release it, and there were, there were legal back-and-forths involving one of the producers. Uh, other producers died. Uh, other people looked at it. There were other cuts made. Uh, finally, after whatever settlements, whatever the legal stuff was, blew over, uh, Sony got a cut that was 150 minutes. That's what they released in a very limited capacity last year. And the DVD that just came out this week includes both the 150-minute uh, version and the, I think, like 304-minute version that Kenneth Lonergan wanted to release. Uh, so Dingus and I have seen both of those. Kelly Wan, you've just seen the... Uh, whoa, whoa, whoa. 300-minute version. No fucking way. Uh, no, three and a, three hour and four minutes. So, right. I'm sorry, 184. Yeah, don't... <laughs> I can't do that. That is cool, though, that there might be a two-and-a-half-hour missing version. <laughs> uh, it's basically an extra half hour uh, of, of stuff. Um, yeah, he, he doesn't refer to it as a director's cut, though. I mean, he, it's it's an extended cut. It's something. It's some other animal. Right. Uh, so, that said, uh, Kelly Wand, uh, having only seen the shorter version, what did you think of Margaret? Uh, I liked it considerably more until I learned that I'd watched the Balderai's version. And then when I found out what I'd missed, it seemed like he maybe made the wrong cuts. Just, I mean, if it's that, if there's a six-year statute of limitation on these things, then it should just come out, like in theaters, with the longer version, right? Like, no one should care anymore. It's not in the books. Uh, I'm guessing that it, it became like such a legal thing. I, you know what? I don't know. Who knows what went on with it? I don't. I don't feel that uh, you missed that much. I don't really? Know, might have something else to say, but no, I don't. I even think, as much as I loved this movie, I'm not even sure it needed to be two and a half hours long. Uh, I, I I adore the characters in this movie, so I I didn't mind sitting with them for two and a half hours. I didn't mind sitting with them for three hours for the the cut. But from uh, just from a from a creative perspective, I. I don't feel this needed to be that long. Um, so I, you know, I don't want to side with anyone, but I wished that Kenneth Lonergan had gone ahead and made a shorter version. It had gotten released at a more timely time, you know, back in what, 2008, 2009, whenever, uh, and then it would have gotten a push from Sony. Uh, I just hate that the running time, which I don't feel was necessary, ended up getting it swept under the rug. Um, thing is, how did you feel about the longer cut? Um, I, I'm going to have a weird uh, opinion about this. I think I will like any cut that he puts together of this, uh, because I, I think that he's got this weird thing, Kenneth Lonergan, when I say he, uh, where I think he sees any cut he puts out as just another version of the movie. And I don't know that he psychologically can handle the idea of having a definitive cut. Um, and it's not just length of scenes or length of movie. There's a whole different thing going on with the soundscape in the yeah. extended version. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a different movie in a lot of ways. And I really like both movies. I really, I think, I, I agree with Tom. 
I think that the theatrical cut is brilliant, and I think the extended cut is brilliant, but they have different they have different aspects to them. And I watched the extended cut first and, and figured that I would watch the theatrical cut and be really annoyed by it. And as I started to see the cuts that were happening, I would, I would note them. But then I would think, you know, this works. And I think Tom is right. I think even shorter would be fine. I, just, I wish this movie had come out because the characters are brilliant. But, I, but I'll watch three hours of it. Because I love the way it works at three hours. I don't. I mean, that doesn't really help. But there were. There wait, were, wait, wait! You watched the long version first, is what you're saying. I watched. I, I've watched them multiple times this week because I. Re, I'm. I really love this movie, and I'm pissed that I didn't see it last year because I think it would have made my list, and I'm pissed that it's not a 2012 movie because I think it would have made my list. And there's nothing the I can. <laughs> there's nothing I can do with it other than just enjoy it. Um, I I enjoy watching the long version, and I watch that first because the Blu-ray has both versions uh, available, and it just came out on Tuesday. Um, and then I watched the theatrical cut, and I noticed where the cuts were, but the movie still works. It really works well because the you characters are. I knew what was missing, um, and there, there's one glaring omission that is that kind of freaks me out, and there's a couple things that are lost that. Uh, bother me, and a couple things that are lost that don't. But I'm fine with either. And but ultimately, I I think Tom's right. I think that if if Kenneth Lonergan had gotten his shit together, no offense to him because he's brilliant, and made a, a serviceable cut that we could have all seen, it still would have been a brilliant movie. And and part of why I you know I don't want to blame anyone, but part of why I say that too, Dingus, is Margaret is so amazing, and it, it kind of pisses me off that it didn't get the attention it deserved. Right. Uh, you know that someone didn't swallow their pride and recognize like the, the brilliance of Anna Paquin's performance, of J. Cameron Smith, who I've never seen before, of his script, of all of these fantastic. You know, the the cast overall is amazing, and he is Jeannie so- Berlin. Yeah, Je- Jeannie I'm Berlin. Not. Yeah, and he's so generous too with how much great stuff how many of the characters get. Uh, I mean, this is such a treasure trove for anybody who enjoys good writing, good acting, good storytelling. Uh, and it's just so annoying that, that whatever pride and legal shenanigans were involved have, has, has kept this from being seen by more people. Um, mm. No, Kelly Wand? I just think uh, it should only have been the longer cut. Well, you don't know. So, for instance, Kelly Wan, here's a weird one. Uh, she actually does get pregnant and get an abortion. Her mother takes her to get an abortion, and you, you see you see a confrontation between her and her mother with a pregnancy test, and you see her mother taking her to the abortion clinic. Well, why are you cutting that? That's my I, I know. It's an odd one. That That's an odd... Uh, is, so it doesn't not, work as well for me, not having seen the three-hour one and knowing that I'm missing an abortion scene. Dingus, is that what you were mentioning sure. when you said one of them freaked you out? Yeah, yeah, that's that's a that's a freakish cut because her scene confronting Matt Damon and his wife um, <laughs> is hey. is, com- is a completely freakish scene. It it totally changes who the character is. Well, th- no, it doesn't. It it just it makes us interpret is she a liar or crazy or did that happen? And we just have to decide. Right. And if and w- the thought is if the filmmaker isn't going to tell us she got pregnant and had an abortion, we have to assume it's a lie. And, and it does make her seem 
a lot more once it makes i mean she's manipulative plenty of times during the movie but it just makes it feel like yet another manipulative thing that she does and and i have to say i'm almost i almost prefer it that way because the 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 fact of a pregnancy and an abortion happening to her i mean there's so much that she goes through and to just kind of lump that in there with it and and just show it so briefly and not have it mentioned that much uh just feels like it's giving the issue short shrift um, I mean, yeah. that's just such a huge moment, and it's just two scenes, and without those two scenes, it never happens. Um, so but That's your interpretation, or you just go, oh, there was an abortion scene, but I didn't see it. Well, the thing is, in the shorter cut where you don't see the abortion I'm, scene, right? Y- you really do assume that she's just jerking him around. I mean, really, you would, that you late would, in the movie, that doesn't work, though. You would assume you would assume that if she comes up and says something that's that, you would assume that if something that significant happened, the movie would show it. Right. At least that was my assumption when I, because I saw the shorter cut first. That was my assumption when I first watched it. Was that oh, she's just being manipulative to poor Matt Damon? And really, that scene to me is more about what Matt Damon does. I mean, that right. scene there is all yeah. about him standing there and being willing. You know, basically uh, opening himself to her and saying, you know what, if, if you want to do this to me, I, I will allow you to do it. And he's amazing in that scene, and I love that that, that scene is about him. Uh, and if she really did have an abortion, I mean, if she really did go through that, it just brings a whole other dimension to that scene that, in a way, I kind of feel it doesn't need. Uh, uh, but, you know, what? it's a fascinating study, though, in... Kenneth Lonergan has all this amazing material, and there's so many different things he can do with it. I mean, it's a fascinating study in, in what editing does and doesn't do to a movie, uh, seeing both of these cuts. Um, but then, if we don't see her sex scene with Damon, we don't know if she's lying or not. Like, if, if she's even lying that they had sex. Well, we know they had sex because yeah. they, they basically acknowledge that to each other at the end of the scene. I mean, in movie language, that's clearly established that they have indeed have had sex. It's not. It's in. It's it's. Was it good? <laughs> I couldn't tell from that. Scene. It's just sex. It doesn't matter. That's true. Kelly, one, you're acting like a kid. I know. I will. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll see you at school tomorrow, Kelly. <laughs> uh, so let, let's talk. My place. So I have to say, when I first started watching this, uh, I, you know, I, I loved Anna Paquin and Squid and the Whale, even though it wasn't as that substantial a part. It was just kind of this raw sexuality that's introduced in the third act of the movie. She's great in that. And, of course, she's the little girl in the, the piano. Wait, piano? Teach piano, right? Uh, but I, I had most recently seen... I, I tried to watch, like, the first couple episodes of True Blood. Or, no, wait. Uh, is that the vampire one that she's in? Yeah, yeah, I can get into it. It's awful, and she's awful in it. I was so annoyed at her. So the last, the last I really knew of Anna Paquin was sitting down trying to watch True Blood... And I think she does like an accent in it or something, but it was just wretched. So I she's naked in it. When Margaret started, uh, I, I wasn't coming from a place where I really wanted to watch Anna Paquin act for two and a half hours. So early on, you know, she does the scene with Matt Damon, and then she does that weird, awkward flirting kind of scene with her friend Darren. And I was like, oh, oh. that's such a scene where you're watching it and you're going, we're doing a scene. And, and I was I was convinced, oh, she's terrible, and I'm going to have to watch this for two and a half hours. But then the scene with with uh, Alice and Janney, and the the bus accident happens, and and certainly the I think the centerpiece of the movie for me is the scene with her and J. Cameron Smith, where J. Cameron Smith comes in and says, you know, it starts very tritely. This scene could be in any sitcom. She comes in and she says, does this dress make me look fat? 
and that that right there just looks like some domestic scene. It, it you know, it's it's such it's so trite for her to just start a scene that way. But then the way that scene plays out with the two of them, I mean, it is such a fantastic and just brilliant scene as two characters revealing themselves to each other and to the audience, just as a self-contained bit. I love that sequence, uh, and and so much of Anna Paquin's just frustration and this raw confusion just spills out of her in this scene. And I was so won over at that point. Uh, so that when I watched it a second time, I really did love even that weird flirty scene that she has <laughs> with Darren. Uh, and even, but, but I went from really being annoyed with her as an actress to just being so completely won over. I mean, this is such an amazing performance. Uh, and I, I love I love that scene that you're talking about because at first I had the same reaction you did. I just feel like I'm watching people who are obviously doing a scene. But as you get to know her and you hear her do a few times during the movie correcting the words that she's using or the grammar that she's using while she's using it, you realize that the things that um, – what's she Berlin's character's name? Emily? Emily. Emily, yes. You realize the, thing, the things that Emily says to her in that – scene where she confesses uh, about uh, Lisa, the daughter. Uh, you realize the things that, that Emily says about her are true. She thinks she's starring in her own opera, and she hears the words she's saying, and she talks like that. And I think it's a phenomenal performance because of that. And I, w- I would say that, uh, you know, I love when a scene kind of brings out the point of a movie, and there are a few of them, he- a few of them here, but certainly that scene that she has with Emily, with Jeannie Berlin, uh, where she's explaining to her, you know, that you're young, uh, these experiences don't, you know, they, they come to you more more easily. Uh, you are not someone who was hit by a bus or lost a child or was killed by an earthquake in Algeria, but you will be. I mean, that uh. that whole sequence right there, and, and of course, that comes in the poem Margaret, which the movie is named after, this idea that children will grow up and have to deal with adult things. I mean... I love the way that that scene encapsulates the movie and that line that you mentioned, Dingus, about, you know, you just think that that everyone is a supporting character and the fascinating drama that is your life. Uh, I mean, that's really what it's about, that that's and that the process of becoming an adult is realizing that that's not the case, that you are not the center of the universe and that that selfishness and that cruelty you have to other people, uh, that you kind of have to move past that. Um, and I love, by the way, again, watching it the first time. The very first scene uh, where she gets the test, the B minus C me from Matt Damon, and she has the conversation with him where he says, where she's like, I don't have to use this in real life. And he has a couple of lines that, again, are the point of the movie, where he says, haven't you ever had an experience that changed you and, and made you interested in things you weren't interested in before? And she's yeah. like, no, no, never. Uh, and that right there, I love how that's a reveal that this is what this movie is. It's almost like the overture in a way. It's like, this <laughs> is what the movie that you're going to watch is about. This innocuous scene of a teacher telling a girl, look, you got to do your math homework. This is what the movie will express on a larger stage is the point he's making. Uh, and that's what Kenneth Lonergan is so good at. I mean, he's such, an, he's such a, a fantastic writer in terms of couching important concepts in really innocuous dialogue. I love that, without seeming like stagey or preachy or contrived. Um, but, uh, but on the other, the other hand, and this is one of the reasons why I, I couched the movie in, this, in these terms, in that, in that scene where she's dealing with the, the settlement, and, and she's so idealistic... <laughs> I just got that sense of why teenagers should rule the world because they haven't been corrupted and why they're idealistic. Well, 
this is the way it goes. We get people, we, we punish people by getting money from them. Well, that's the problem. Adults have been corrupted, and, and this is the, the situation that we've created. And if, if the world were run by teenagers, that wouldn't happen. People would just get punished. We wouldn't get, we wouldn't get money. You just get the whim of the teenager, and that guy would be punished, which isn't necessarily good. But we wouldn't have that system where $350,000, which doesn't sound like a lot of money to me. Um, <laughs> wow, Dingus. Well, as, as far as like McDonald's getting coffee <laughs> spilled in your crotch kind of money that we hear to hear about, um, that that whole idea of, of we're just going to pay you and nobody's going to have to admit any anything was wrong, that, that thing of the teenager getting so upset, is the other side of that, and I and I kind of like how Kenneth Lonergan injects a little bit of that too. We know, though, Dingus. I mean, if you if you think about it, I mean, as far as the the moral universe in which this movie takes place, does Mark Ruffalo deserve to be punished? I mean, he it, it's it's a fairly innocent moment. He's just not paying attention, and someone dies. Uh, That's not like, an innocent moment. He's an idiot. He totally deserves to be punished. You crazy? He should go to the electric chair. Hell's <laughs> <laughs> wrong with you people? Okay, so you think that? So who's going to su- hit the brakes? I so mean, who's who's going to support Rosemary DeWitt and those screaming children at the upstairs of the house? Then Kelly Wand. Uh, his life insurance. <laughs> After he gets electrocuted. Yeah, I figured it all out. I crunched the numbers. <laughs> Well, then, so then should Anna Paquin be punished for distracting the bus driver? I mean, the thing is, it's a complex moral gymnasium, so to speak. Right. Uh, there, 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 are all, all, there are all kinds of acrobatics that can be done in this moral gymnasium. Uh, whoa, whoa, it's, whoa, whoa, it's not that cut and dried. That, that he, but she's, he's supposed to be mature. She's a kid. She's minor. She doesn't know what she's doing. What, every time he sees a piece of ass, he's going he's gonna to run over somebody? This crime's a little like she didn't hit anybody. The miracle is like she didn't smash into anybody like or hit a street lamp. So in a way, she's a genius. Okay. Well, I, the thing is, there there are no easy answers. If that's your interpretation, that's fine. But the way I look at it, it was just a terrible accident. You know, there there wasn't. Yeah, sure. He was driving a bus. He should have been paying closer attention. Alice and Janie should have looked both ways before she stepped out right. of the street. Uh, you know, yeah, Anna Paquin true. shouldn't have been distracting a bus driver. Uh, I don't think he was leering at her because she she was, as you said, a piece of ass. I mean, she's attractive, but I never got the sense that there was any sort of then he's even dumber, uncomfortable sexuality uh, there. I mean, it seemed like an innocent exchange. Like, hey, this crazy girl's waving at me. She wants to know about my hat. Uh, that just, it, it seems like an implausible event to me that that would happen like that. Like, there'd be one person, and it'd be the girl who caused the accident would be the only witness in it, and no one else would have seen her distracting him. I don't know. It's a it's hard for me to visualize it. Okay, thank you. It's something <laughs> the first act. But the thing is, it's just a setup for us to sort of explore uh, the, the, the morality in this universe. Sure. Right. And in, in a way, it reminded me so much of A Separation, which is another movie that Dingus and I love that you haven't seen, Kelly Wand, which a lot of it has to do with a, a child experiencing the complex world of like law and society, and a separation has more to do with the re- religion, but uh, uh, Margaret has a lot to do with art, where maybe religion might have been in a separation. Um, but just as a domestic drama, exploring moral calculus. Uh, you know, Margaret is a lot like a separation. And of, it also reminds me of Sweet Hereafter, which is also about a child's account of a bus accident. Right. Uh, uh, and, you know, 
I can't help but watch the relationship between Anna Paquin's character and Jason Cameron Smith's character, and certainly the arc of their relationship. And I can't help but watch that and think of Brave. Uh, that's good. Dingus Um No, yeah. I was just thinking of making a bravi joke, but I but instead Tom made me just quiet. <laughs> no, but but I love I love that relationship because I love how insecure. Um, her mom is. Oh, God, yeah, yeah. I love the way those scenes go, and their arguments are just perfect. The 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 argument where the mom does whatever. Are you imitating me? And they and then they call each other cunts. And I, I love the way that relationship works, and the way that mom just works in the household, and the way the brother kind of sits there and makes snarky <laughs> comments. What did they I, do I with her leg? Love, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's the answer to that? That's a good question. The answer I is, is I don't fucking know. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's the answer, and then cut. Her mom's an actress, so it makes sense that she, Anna Paquin would be a bad actress, like not being able to find the right words all the time. Like her mom does her better than she does. I don't think she's a bad actress. I just think that she she hears the dialogue of her movie in her head and she seems to be saying it and correcting it but not knowing how to control it um she just has such an odd sense of control of her own life she's she's at a point in her life where she's understanding that she has power over men and boys uh and she's starting to exercise that but she doesn't know quite what to do with it and she doesn't know what to do with her words either. You hear her correct herself a couple of times. And I think this is part, I mean, this really reminds me. I, I had a friend, a very close friend in college who, who her, her mom was an actress. And a lot of what she described about their relationship reminded me of this relationship, about how dramatic it was and how purposely dramatic it was. And how they fed off of the drama of their own relationship. Huh. That's a bummer. It's a it's a bummer, but it it's it's part of what what feeds them as people. I mean, and it's it's just so interesting to hear to see the way she talks to her mother as opposed to the way she talks to her father. Kelly, one, do you know who played her father? Uh, David Morse. <laughs> You're terrible at actors. I don't know. I uh, that that, that was Kenneth Lonergan. That was the director, and he is married to J. Cameron Smith. Uh, Kenneth Lonergan is to the. The woman who played his wife, but she didn't give birth to Anna Paquin in real life. She is not related to either of them, no, as far as I know. Uh, so they're acting. They are acting, yes. And that was such a great dynamic too, like the calls of their father. So for the most part, I loved, loved, loved how the movie didn't try to make either of the parents like negligent or inept. Um, but I just, I thought it was just so heartbreaking and, and a little bit too contrived when he cancels the trip to New Mexico. I, I so was liking him and kind of liking their relationship and kind of feeling, ah, it's a sucky situation, but they're making the best of it. And then I felt so mad at him when he canceled. That just felt like this little contrived, we need to introduce drama at this moment. I didn't like that. Nah, he's lame. He was a bad guy. I know, but I didn't want him to be lame. Uh, he just seemed mm-hmm. so well-intentioned. And I knew it was Kenneth Lonergan, too. You know, I can't help but watch those scenes and think, ah, this is the guy that, that brought me this movie. You know, have so I have to like him. That's what you were thinking. <laughs> well, he's very... I go, oh, that David Morris, he sure is a bad father as usual in this movie. <laughs> he's a very likable guy. I mean, you can't, uh, you can't deny that. Kaiwan, you never, you never saw You Can Count on Me? 
I don't see full sentences, movie titles. <laughs> okay. He's got, a, he's got yeah you do he's got a great part in that as, as well uh, so let's talk briefly too about just all the little great parts like little and big like like we've already talked about Jeannie Berlin certainly J. Cameron Smith uh, actually she's arguably a lead um, uh, let's let's talk about some of the smarter part like how absolutely freaking perfect was that lawyer holy cats where did they get that guy is that like a real lawyer that guy was what do you amazing mean? Dave the lawyer or the white guy? Not Michael Ely. Like uh, Dave the lawyer was uh, like I got the sense that he was not a good lawyer because partly because I don't think the actor was that good at playing a lawyer. But it sort of made me think, okay, he's just a flashy kid who became a lawyer. He's not very good. But no, the- no. But but I love the I love the inter the interplay he has with Emily. Yeah, yeah. She she clearly has this maternal sort of cowing of him. Yeah. And and he's like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm I'm concentrating, I'm mm-hmm. sorry. And that's that's a terrible thing to say to someone. Like, dingus, dingus, concentrate. Like, what a, what a horrible thing to say to someone, too, who's trying to talk to you. Yeah. <laughs> You're doing such a sucky job. You're obviously not concentrate. Kelly Wan, concentrate. Well, and he's doing his job, too, so it's like, concentrate on what you're, the one thing you're supposed to be good at. But there's these little things he does where it's clear that that's their relationship, and even there's this wonderful moment back when he's in his office where he says something about the, the MTA has their own police force, and Emily goes off on, like, what do we care? Who fucking cares? And he's like, okay, okay. And, and Anna Paquin gives him this look like, it's, it's all right, I, I get it, too. Uh, it's clear that that's their relationship, and he, I love the way he played that. And certainly one of my favorite cuts, because there were a lot of abrupt cuts here, by the way, and I, I'm mostly okay with that. But one of my favorite was him at lunch looking in vain for the waiter. <laughs> that was just so lo- – what a lovely way to play us out of that scene. <laughs> so I'm sorry, Tom. You were talking about the other – Just other. guys like that other lawyer who had such this, like, lawyerly aspect to him and the two cops, you know, the two cops that she has scenes with – the uh, the one who calls her honey, and then the other cop. You know, when we see him making tea, for instance, uh, I just love the attention that he gives these supporting characters. Certainly, you know, the teachers, the other school kids, for instance. Uh, Kelly Wan, did you know? Did you realize that you got a little Olivia Thurlby in this movie? What? No. Yeah. Oh wait, she was a friend, right? No, she not the friend. I mean, she's just one of the girls in class. She wasn't the friend that she was smoking a J with. She was the one who's like, I think we all need to apologize. To Angie. Oh, yeah. I have to watch the whole movie again now. <laughs> I didn't know that was her. That's for seven years ago, too. Yeah. Years ago? Right, right, right. It's almost too soon. Uh, and, and Jean Renault. I mean, how, how, how kind of precious was he with his accent and everything? And I loved the scene, especially because it didn't show us his face. I love the scene where he's explaining his company and the fact that Kenneth Lonergan holds the camera on J. Cameron Smith's face. Like her trying to look interested in being polite during that scene. Uh, then on that date. <laughs> so, Kelly, what? Go ahead, Diggis. I was just going to say, I like John Gallagher Jr., too. I, I really like that guy. Um, Which part was he? He's Darren. I, and, yes. And one of the scenes I really liked, um, but I don't think it's necessary, and I have to make this distinction. Uh, I, I really like the extended cut is there's this coffee shop diner scene yeah. where he's sitting there talking to her, and you don't hear anything they're saying. You're hearing all the conversations in the scene. And this is this is sort of part and parcel of how the extended cut uses sound design and music in a different way than the theatrical cut does. But you, you push in on them, and then you finally get around to him. And and this informs the scene later on when yeah. he calls her and and he has this emotional reaction, 
And again, you also miss uh, in the theatrical cut the fact that she storms out of the well, it doesn't storm. She just leaves the movie that they're watching to go to her mom. You don't see her leave the movie in the theatrical cut, I don't think. And I really like the way John Gallagher is is playing all of this. And I and I also just like the way that's all cut together because even though it kind of makes me hate Annie Hall a little bit because Ugh. I just like the way this movie. <laughs> This movie treats New York and sound and relationships in a more in a way that has more gravity to it. And maybe that's just because we're after 2001 instead of before. I don't know, but I really like John Gallagher Jr. Yeah, he he was great. Um, hey, do you know him from other stuff, Dingus? Um, yeah, he's he's in actually he's in, and I've only seen a couple of episodes of this, and I'm not entirely crazy about it. But he's in the newsroom, which is this Aaron Sorkin thing. Oh. Okay, well, good for him. Good. He, he's Tom. Why aren't you on that show? You're Aaron Sorkin's. I don't play. I don't play journalists. Just uh, as a matter of policy, it's something I avoid. Okay. Apparently, he was also in in Jonah Hex, though, and I know you love that, Tom. Oh yeah, my favorite Michael Fassbender movie. <laughs> uh, so, Dingus, one of the things that I really missed in the extended cut, there were a couple scenes that I really liked. I, I really liked the bit that Jean Reno has with Jake Cameron Smith, where he explains to her. She's like, don't you feel that we don't have much in common? And they have that little exchange on the roof of, of his house before he mm. brings her in to show her the pictures. I loved that little exchange. Aww. And maybe her reaction. She's, she's just so good with him. Uh, and then I also liked the longer scene that she has with Matt Damon when she goes to his apartment. Because if I'm not mistaken, there's a fair amount of her sort of seduction of him in that scene that's not in the shorter cut. Uh, oh, no, no, no. You know what I'm thinking of, Dingus? Especially, it's the scene where... Uh, and I don't like this, actually. The scene where she rides his bicycle. Yeah, there's and more comes, of the bike. Yeah. yeah, and she comes back around to him and says, you know, I'm in love with you. I revere you like a god. I didn't need that. And I, I especially didn't need the discussion with Kieran Culkin about the I love you, what, nothing line. I love that little line, and I didn't feel like it needed to be talked about post-coitally. Right, uh, right. So I missed that. But uh, they talk about that. But there's a, do, there's yeah. an addition in the theatrical cut. I mean, this is what's weird. In the theatrical cut, Karen Culkin, before she calls him, says, uh, this is the worst book I've ever read. And for some reason, it's not the extended cut. I don't know what, what they were thinking. I think just a couple people <laughs> took wax at things, including Martin Scorsese and Thelma Schoonmaker. I mean, they just took wax at editing and, and just threw a couple of things against the wall and saw what stick. I, I honestly think that Kenneth Lonergan was, uh, and I think this is just a, psych- a psychological thing, I think he was hampered by how great uh, You Can Count On Me was. And and just, I think he just couldn't ever pull the trigger on this movie. Well, and certainly the performances. I mean, just watching it twice, I'm in love with the characters. Having written it and seen it unfold while he shoots it, I mean, I can only imagine how difficult it must have been for him to, to yeah. cut scenes. Uh, although I will say... Holy cats, I did not need that drama class sequence. Oh, good God. Oh, Holy shit. So awful. <laughs> that is embarrassing. It really was. That really was. Please. I mean, it gives you, Please. It gives you a little yeah. bit of a feeling for, the, for why she says she loves Darren so much in the hallway uh, at that party. But other than that, it's just embarrassingly awful. Yeah, describe it to Kelly Wand. Kelly Wand, here's what you missed. All right, what you missed is that um, Anna Paquin is working tech on a play. What? She's, she's calling the cues, and, and the, the, the shot opens with her in blue light from backstage calling a cue, and then we move on to the drama teacher 
have holding forth on stage with the entire cast of whatever play they're going to do. Do you remember what play it is, Tom? I don't, I don't think I – was it a real play? I don't know that they ever said uh, – I don't remember. But but they're, they're about to open the play. It's a high school play. They're having trouble. So he decides to have a whole a powwow where everybody tells their feelings about the play uh-huh. and about the cast. And so they all have this, this awful drama crying and hugging uh, scene that is just – terrible and it's a kind of a microcosm of the political scenes because again the poor syrian girl has to come and yell about something but now (laughs) she's now she's with the crew and she's yelling that the crew hasn't been respected by the actors and very eventually darren hugs somebody and then um igby goes down says hey dude i'm just a musician i don't know what the big deal is i just want to go up on the roof and smoke pot yeah dude It's just embarrassing and, and just self-indulgent. And yeah, it really is awful. Uh, <laughs> is that uh, what kids are like now? They go to school and they, they argue heatedly about 9-11. And you know shit. what, Kelly Wan? So I, I mentioned Sweet Here After before. Adam McGorian, maybe three, four years ago, did a horrible movie called uh, Adoration which is all about how kids relate to 9-11 and terrorism, mm. how they how they talk on chat roulette about it. And too it was, soon. That's my it, review. Not only too soon, but just so ham-fisted and obviously out of touch. You know, it's sort of like Adam McGorian, I'm assuming, writing about, yeah, this must be what kids today are like. Why and, just kids? Just do everybody or something. Well, it's about specifically about a kid. You know, he puts his wife exactly. in it, who's amazing, and there's a... I forget who else is in it, but a lot of it is about how kids relate to 9-11, and it's just so awful. So compared to Adoration, that Adam McGoyan movie, I, I loved this, like, watching these kids, like, argue and stuff. And what was the deal, by the way, with, Dingus, your wife is in education. What's going on where they have a class where there's, like, a really old, grizzled white professor and a younger black guy kind of, I, I don't know if he was, like, his his bodyguard or his advisor or that that seemed like a really weird like was one of the guys a guest teacher but it's like the class was being taught by two different teachers a really old white guy and a sort of a younger hip black dude uh what was going on there? like the lawyers i'm so happy you brought that up because i can't wait to show this movie to wendy for that reason because um this is an example of her area of expertise and this is just an example of co-teaching and um and the the idea in modern teaching is that you can have two teachers uh, doing the doing work in the classroom side by side, and you're going to have a lot of different uh, aspects of teaching that go on. And you might have a population in a classroom nowadays that uh, a lot of them uh, are uh, typical learners. Some of them are learners who have special needs. And rather than taking all the special needs students into another room and giving them a test and teaching them alone, we're going to have all the kids in one room, and we're going to have two teachers, one who's an expert in the in the subject matter, one who's an expert in learning styles. And we're going to teach ah. side by side, and we're going to help manage the classroom side by side. And sometimes we'll do it in the way that this movie shows, which is kind of like a parallel teaching where we're, we're teaching at the same time. Sometimes we're going to have where we break out into separate sections. But, but this is co-teaching, which is a huge, uh, a huge thing in education right now in this country, and she's an expert in that. So it was really cool to see that, in addition to seeing the Matt Damon and Matthew Broderick conventional teaching styles of one, one teacher uh, doing sort of a chalk and talk. 
the, the movie sort of did cover the, the gamut there. It did have that cool co-teaching thing. And I was watching that thinking, man, that's aw- that's an awesome way to do it. I love this scene. And, of course, Matt Damon being the, like, honky teacher, whatever. But I loved – I adored the scene where Matthew Broderick was so frustrated with that one kid's interpretation of the line from Lear. And, I mean, that, that could have been an election. election yeah. yeah. Same character. God, I loved that scene. And I just loved that, that kid, David, with his interpretation of the God superior consciousness. And how Matt Damon, I mean, Matt Damon, how Matthew Broderick was just so frustrated with his kid and finally had to tell him, you're wrong. That is not what Shakespeare was saying. I would like to move on now. I'm going to have my orange The kid's not interested in talking about the topic. <laughs> He's drinking out of that pathetic little juice box. Yeah. Uh, but oh, I just I loved the 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 range again, and, it, and I liked that it wasn't just like a movie where the teachers are inept. I mean, some of the teachers were good. Matt Damon was just he did the worst possible thing in the situation he was put in, and those two co-teachers were fascinating. Uh, I, I just loved the range of, of characters there. Um, Ideally, every kid should have thirty teachers of his own at once. Yeah, staff. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, so Tom, having seen both movies, uh, or both versions, or the or these two versions, uh-huh. you know, who knows what will show up later? What do you think of the of the sound and music in the two different versions? I didn't I didn't really like what he was doing with the soundscape stuff because he did it a few times, and I kind of got the point, this idea that you know it's a city and there are a thousand stories and other people are talking, and uh, I, you know I didn't need that. I didn't feel that that point really belonged here. Um, so the soundscape stuff I didn't care for, but as a guy who loves opera, you know I love seeing movies where opera really matters to characters. You know, there's this great scene in Birth, which is uh, you know that movie with Nicole Kidman and Cameron Bright, which is basically just her watching the uh, the opening, the overture to one of Wagner's Ring Cycle operas, and uh, during a moment when she's emotionally devastated, and just watching that emotion play over her face while she's listening to that music. So just as someone who really appreciates that kind of thing, I love how much attention he gave to the effect that not just opera, but poetry and Shakespeare has on, on the characters. Um, and certainly that ending just was just so amazing, you know, that this, this flood of emotion comes out of her face and, you know, she, she grips her mother's hand during that moment. Uh, and I don't know, I don't know that opera. It was, uh, it's an Offenbach opera called Tales of Hoffman, I think. I don't know. He referenced yeah. it. I don't know that opera and I, I had no idea what was going on in the opera, but it looked like Kenneth Lonergan wanted us to see parts of it. And I'm not sure why, because I don't know what that was. Just two women relating to each other, I guess. Um, Wait a minute. That's your, your whole, you started that whole tangent with, oh, it's so cool how opera was important to the characters, and now you yeah. don't know why it was. Well, I don't know that opera. I don't know Tales of Hoffman. And it um, looks, what? You're a resident opera expert. You have to know. Nobody knows opera. Tales of Hoffman. Even, even Norma. Like, Norma's a pretty obscure opera. I love that one, but nobody knows Bellini operas. That's like... I mean, it's got a famous aria in it, but uh, he he chose some really obscure operas for whatever reason. There's a there's an opera called Norma. Is that what you just said? Yes, that's the one that uh, Jean Reno takes J. Cameron Smith to see, uh, and we hear the famous aria from that. But then the one at the very end of the movie is Tales of Hoffman, and yeah, I don't know that one at all. Tales of Hoffman. But in the extended cut, by the way, there's a there's a, there's a real dramatic moment where. 
Is it the devil or Satan or someone? Like someone comes from hell to claim Don Giovanni and drag him down to hell. <laughs> and and they do that. They play over the soundtrack in the extended cut after she has you know, fled from the lawyer's office. They play that scene from Don Giovanni over the soundtrack. Uh, so I, I just loved the music in this, but dingus, the the soundscape I could have done without. Did did that soundscape stuff work for you? Uh, the one time I I liked the diner, the coffee shop scene, but again, I don't think it's necessary. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I just liked it, and I did like there. There's sort of this panning across the apartments outside that reminded me of yeah. Shane, kind of where you hear different people talking. There are a couple things about that that I liked, but again. Um, as far as getting the movie made, I don't think those are necessary. They feel like experimental things. Yeah, yeah. But but the music, because he substitutes uh, classical and opera music in the extended cut and and gets rid of, I think, the score that was by Nico Muli, I think is who it was. Uh, he substitutes that out, and that's okay with me, I guess. I mean, I, I do. I, I agree with you. I love that last moment. That last moment where they're hugging reminds me of the end of Fight Club. To be honest, <laughs> it, it really feels like that. That when she's hugging her mom, it feels like she's saying, "You you you met me at a, at a very strange." <laughs> That's beautiful, Dingus. <laughs> uh. But the difference being, the world's not ending here. <laughs> right. Right. Wait. So the mom's imaginary. <laughs> Uh, so here's another thing that kind of, I mean, good Lord, shouldn't Anna Paquin be, get a, be, a, a, a Best Actress nomination? I mean, this is... that, that She should have, and that's why it pisses me off that they didn't push this. She totally deserves that. I mean, God, why? How, yeah, exactly. It, it didn't happen in 2011. And so here's another thing. What the heck is going on? That I knew, I knew very little about Margaret. I only knew that it was directed by Kenneth Lonergan. I knew Anna Paquin was in it. Uh, why didn't I hear more from people last year about how good it was? And I guess the reason I know I didn't hear more is because it's not, you know, it's 61 on Metacritic. Like, it apparently didn't get that, it wasn't that well received for whatever reason. Um, but I thought, what a brilliant piece of work and what, and what unforgettable performances all around. Uh, so, But nobody saw it, so 61% just means out of the three people that saw it, like, two of them liked it. So two out of three. And the other one didn't understand it. Right. I guess so. <laughs> Stink's going to say something. Well, I was just uh, there. There was a moment when when I thought um, that Alice and Janney would have played Emily in a different director's movie instead of playing the Monica part, and I'm really glad. I, I think she would have done fine, but I really, really glad I got to see Jeannie Berlin, yeah. who uh, I barely remember from. I think the Heartbreak Kid. She was in the original of that. Um, I, I can't remember her from anything else. And I love Alice and Janney, and, and that, that scene, which I think is an incredible scene that she has, sort of recalls a time in, in Hollywood. And at the very beginning of this movie reminds me of a, of a 70s movie, the way the, the credits are stacked and the way it's sort of slow motion and classical music, people, a huge crowd crossing the street. But but there was a time like when Midnight Cowboy was, was out where – a supporting actress or a supporting actor nomination was because of one scene that one good actor did. It didn't. It wasn't just a supporting part. It might have been a showcase scene, and she's so good in that moment that I don't. I just don't. I'm with Tom. I don't understand why more people weren't talking about this. Thanks, Sony. 
Yeah. <laughs> first, first Spider, actually first this, and now Spider Man. Great. Nice work, Sony. Uh, Thanks a lot. Well, they gave us no, they gave us good laughs. Spider Man. Spider Man. Uh, okay. If, if and that's... tears with this laughter and tears. All right. Uh, Kelly Wand, what what did you think? <laughs> Shut up, Dingus. Kelly Wand, what did you think of Anna Paquin's performance? Uh, Badonka Donk? One, two, three, not only you and me, got 180 degree around the in between, counting one, two, three, Peter Pan. That was a pretty clever segue, I really had no idea. I apologize. What was Dingus up here? So rude. Kelly, Kelly Wand, you are nothing if not helpful. Hmm. <laughs> I don't want to interrupt while well, you guys talk about opera. Sounds pretty uh, <laughs> fascinating. <clears throat> Speaking of operatic, Ingus, what is this week's 3 by 3 Oh, I apologize. Should I apologize? Thank you. Exactly. You, sh- you should have been apologizing throughout the week while I was thinking, what am I supposed to do with this? Uh, I apologize right now because this topic sucks ass. All right, this is... Well, it's uh, appropriate, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, no, it's not. It's not fair, and it sucks. Oh, God, I feel so bad about this, because I, I sat around all week going, I had one idea. <laughs> We're all going to have one idea repeated. All right, this is, be... uh, this is if Michael Bay had directed it, and I'm, and when I wrote it down, I had... Uh, there were two... There were two movies that made me think of this, and I thought, oh, this is going to be a cool topic, and as soon as I... It came... As soon as I said it last week, I thought, this is stupid. Uh, so anyway, it's, it's if Michael Bay had directed it, it's uh, you guys choose a scene, and I do too, and uh, Michael Bay ruins it or improves it. Uh, and Michael Bay is sort of, place, again, a placeholder for this sort of quick cut, I can't see who's fighting whom, and I I just can't stand the way so much modern action is directed. And the, the example I gave was why I liked uh, Immortals, is that you could actually tell what was going on in the fights, and you didn't have to wonder who punched. What was he doing? You could. I don't remember that. <laughs> that's, I don't remember being able to tell shit. I, about I made a on. point of saying that. Kelly, uh, one. That's the version of Immortals that exists in Dingus's head. We I, didn't. We did not get to see that one. <laughs> I. Okay. <laughs> Suddenly, Dingus likes the Immortals, and he always liked the Immortals. I just want to make sure I understand. I didn't like the Immortals. I liked Immortals, and I liked it then. And go back and listen to it, bitch. No, I'll just believe you. It's faster, right? Uh, all right. Well, that's not Michael Bay. I mean, your what was your example of a Michael Bay? Uh, so what do you Mike- say, Kelly? One is is Michael Bay doesn't does action where you Correct. can't tell what's going on. Uh, whereas Henry Cavill or no uh, Tarsim, does, Henry Cavill, whatever <laughs> Tarsim does scenes where you can tell what's going on. Uh, so the idea you- being the idea being that if Michael Bay had directed Immortals. Immortals. You wouldn't would be able to see. Yeah, exactly. All right, that's the example of an opposite extreme. Exactly. Whereas instead, you know, the version of Immortals we saw was, you know, so clear in the character motivation right. and the fight scenes and the choreography the and the Hitchcockian crop dusting. <laughs> right. Exactly. Bullshit compared to <laughs> pointed out. Accurate. All right. All right. Well, I did end up liking this thing is because I, I came up with a few things that I kind of enjoy. But so let's see. So here we go. The first thing: if Michael Bay had made uh, Prometheus, a movie that we all saw. Oh, wow. Nicely done. I'm excited about this. Oh, yes. 
I don't think any of us was fond of it. And, and specifically, uh, you mentioned, you know, we talked about the scene in Prometheus early on, a, a dust storm. <laughs> it's the right. Prometheus' scene. And you don't know who's – everybody's being blown around. You don't know who's rescuing whom and who's directed the door. And, uh, but here's the thing. If Michael Bay and – and I'm not talking about the dust scene, but that's very – I think that's one of the things that Dingus doesn't like in modern action, that dust scene. Too much dust. Oh, too much dust, not enough uh, – not you can't tell you can't see in it you don't know who's doing what yeah it's it's all very confused but but that's uh, oh very good Kelly one if Michael Cimino had directed Prometheus um, the scene I'm thinking of is when the Prometheus arrives when it lands on the planet LV four whatever uh, they just show up and they come down through the clouds and they land and you know they see these mounds and whatever uh, I was getting bored. <laughs> of Prometheus that early on, nothing was happening. Whereas if Michael Bay had done Prometheus, it would have been a crash landing. It would have been an exciting scene. There would have been action. There would have been problems. There would have been some obstacles this early on. Now, here's what happened to me this week. I Armageddon, I am a staunch Armageddon apologist. I don't like Michael Bay. Like, I hate the island. I don't like the Transformers movies. But I think Armageddon is, and I'm going to go ahead and say this, I've sort of been sheepish about it in the past, but I'm going to go ahead and say that I think Armageddon is a great movie. Whoa. One of the things that Armageddon does... It's a great event. Things are always... (laughs) Armageddon is shot through with explosive mishaps to keep things exciting. Uh, Even the briefings in Armageddon are exciting. You know, when Prometheus comes out... And, and gives a, a little talk. The briefings here, there's lots of camera movement and dramatic shots of these sweating technicians. And then an authority figure says something grave. You know, that's like a briefing scene in a Michael Bay movie. Uh, so I think that if he had done Prometheus, specifically the landing, it would have been a crash landing. Stuff would have been blowing up. It would have put the characters in jeopardy for later on. You know, they, did, they had to do stupid things in order to be put in jeopardy in Prometheus. Whereas if they'd crashed... That right there, they've got to do things to deal with the crash. They're stuck there. They can't get out of there yet. So that's my first one. If Michael Bay had directed Prometheus, it wouldn't have sucked so bad because we would have gotten exciting stuff early on. Hmm. So sweat good, dust bad, except the dust raised by a crashing ship. So Armageddon, he's constantly spraying sweat on people in Armageddon. And I think I think that that, that is a powerful uh, visual <laughs> device. When you know <laughs> – shut up, Kelly Wad. What about pee? <laughs> See, you think I'm being facetious, but not. When you see when you see characters sweating, because normally it it means that they're nervous, that that it raises the stakes. It's a sub, it's a cue to the audience. Hey, they're worried. This is a dangerous situation, or the room's poorly ventilated, which is also suspenseful. (laughs) But normally, you just dry people off and you put nice makeup on. (laughs) But not in a Michael Bay movie. No towels. Not in Armageddon. Even Liv Tyler. Even yeah. Liv Tyler gets sweat. Well, maybe not her. The female pilot of one of the but shuttles. She gets, she gets sugar packets thrown on her. She gets sweat sprayed on her. But yeah, not Liv Tyler. She doesn't sweat. Everybody knows. So there you go. Prometheus wouldn't have sucked so bad if Michael Bay had directed it. There's my number you know, three. You know, that's that's actually great because I think Prometheus could have used a little more aliens. And that that's what happens in aliens, that we have a crash. And I think you're right. I think that, that throwing them into peril early probably would have helped and maybe the scientists would have acted like scientists yep there you go all right kelly one what do you got to top that i like that dingus's uh wrap-up was yeah more aliens like the ship that crashed in aliens 
<laughs> as opposed to the aliens and aliens. Well, they do. They, you know, they have a ship a crash. You know, they're shipwrecked eventually in aliens. It comes later. You know, the landing goes fairly smoothly. Uh, but eventually they get a ship crash. Yeah, I guess we kind of get one at the end of Prometheus, though. Spoiler. Yeah, it's a great ship crash. It's two yeah, ships okay. crashing. And a donut. <laughs> That's a shit. All right, Kelly, what's your number three if Michael Bay had directed it scene? Um, my number three is The Elephant Man, in which he'd be really good at soccer because of all the bumps on his head, and he'd like do like CG shit with the, like, the bouncing. So which scene exactly? The scene where he plays soccer. All right, the, the scene where he plays soccer. See, Dingus, are you glad now of your topic? <laughs> See what you did? <laughs> You're welcome. I'm just glad, because uh, I thought my left foot when he said soccer, but the elephant man is a much better choice. Still thinking. Uh, that's a good one, too, actually. But, the, el- but the, my left foot did play soccer, so... Elephant Man didn't. Ergo, Michael Bay. Oh. <laughs> All right, uh, over to you, Dingus. What's your? Didn't num- the Elephant Man have tweaked hands too? So he, he also he'd been a good soccer because he wouldn't get called for hand laying the ball. Uh, I don't remember the Elephant Man's hands. I'm afraid. You don't remember the Elephant Hands? <laughs> Do not. No. All right. I guess I'll stop talking now. See what happens. Well, let's see what Dingus has for his number three pick for if Michael Bay had directed it. The topic picker. Yeah, so you know these are going to be good. Right. They'd be the best, because whoever picks the topic has to win the topic, or it's embarrassing. Right. We're all winners, or losers in this case. All right, here's a quote from my number three. Of course it's not real. You think I'd be working in a place like this if I could afford a real snake? He goes with another Ridley Scott movie. Interesting. That's right. How you like that? I don't like how uh, Blade Runner's been seeping into the podcast lately, insidiously. Improve. It's just going to encourage uh, Ridley Scott to do a prequel. So, Dingus, be very careful how you proceed. Wait, is this the camera scene? I hope it is. I just get excited. I change my mind. Forget what I just said. Please be the camera scene. Please do a rendition of it. It's not. It's the retirement of Zora. Sorry. Uh, so uh, Zora played by Joanna Cassidy and I, I love that Tom brought Ridley Scott into this first because um, uh, and, and I, I really like that Tom chose uh, how Michael Bay would make it better because I, I'm of course going to go with how Michael Bay made it worse for mine um, and uh, uh, warts and all I love this sequence uh, I, I really have no regard for Ridley Scott as an action director because of what Tom said at the beginning of this that whole dust sequence, you can't tell who's rescuing, what the hell's going on, and, and I, I, I just think he has no idea what to do from that, and Robin Hood, he just doesn't know what to do with action. Um, but, but, the, but Blade Runner gets, gets this right. Uh, it, it, I think it's partly due to the, the limitations of, of the time that the movie was made, and that's fine with me. Uh, but I don't care that we see the awful wigged stuntmans crashing through the glass. Oh, God, that's right. Dingus, why did you remind me of that? Uh, because that's part of my point. Can't they uh, I don't, CG that out? They certainly could, and I think and I think actually Michael Bay would just cut around it. He would have whoever run through the glass, and, and then we'll just put somebody else's face or just do quick cuts so we can't tell who's running through the glass. But that that action see, sequence of, of Deckard shooting... Zora, as she runs through all those plates of glass, uh, 
I, I couldn't care less about seeing this, the, the awful stuntman. That doesn't matter to me because oh. I, I always know who's doing what to whom, and I always feel the time and the impact of the bullets and the glass. So and wait, you're, like, you're okay with the fact that you can see a wigged stuntman, that, that, that it's that painfully evident? Absolutely. Like you figure I, that's the price you pay for the way he shoots it? Absolutely, yeah. I'd, I'd much rather see that than, than wonder who's, sh- who's shooting, what is she running into, what, what's happening, did she just get shot, why is there blood on her coat? Uh, I'd rather see him standing there pointing the gun and her running through pain after pain of that, of that glass. I, I love the way that, that uh, plays out. Michael Bay would reuse a glass scene from the island and just CG it slightly. <laughs> And, it, and it would be all tempered glass, so it would be those tiny little shards. And in this glass, in 1982, it's huge It's huge shards of glass instead of those little particles of glass. Huh. It's terrible. <laughs> Dingus, how do you feel about uh, in Gladiator when the, the gaffer backs into the... Glaciator. <laughs> you, you can't even say that with a straight mouth. <laughs> and how do you feel about uh, the chariot turning over and you can see the little gas canister with uh, in inside of the chariot that's making it flip? How do you feel about that, Dingus? Are you, you okay with those? It, did that on purpose. In Rome, they had those because <laughs> of aliens. That's just uh, so funny. I forgot about just how awful that scene was. With just how, how you could tell it was a stunt man in a wig. And I'm now thinking that this is the same director who left in the cut where the gaffer walks into the scene in Gladiator. Uh-huh. Right. God. You know, if Michael Bay had directed it, it wouldn't happen. If Michael Bay had directed E.T., there wouldn't be camera shadow on the scene where Barry sees the UFOs coming to the house. <laughs> That's E.T. Yeah. <laughs> Camera yeah. shadow in E.T.? Barry's in E.T.? Okay, got it. Barry, it's a little kid. What are you talking about? In E.T., I know. Oh, <laughs> shut up. Close encounters. Shut up. Kelly Wan, did I mention I'm on cold medication? <laughs> I haven't noticed any deterioration. It's not normal. <laughs> well, Kelly Wan, let me give you my number two, and then we'll see what you think of that. Ready? Touche. So here's where I'm enjoying the topic more, because these are aimed at someone on this podcast. Uh, if Michael Bay had directed a little movie called Black Sunday, the blimp would have exploded. <laughs> It doesn't explode. No, here's what's going on. Mr. Dingus on this podcast has before confessed that, you know, that movie Black Sunday where terrorists take over a blimp and they're going to blow it up over the Super Bowl and, you know, throw shrapnel down and kill thousands of people. And Dingus has said how when he saw it as a kid, he he couldn't help but be a little disappointed that, that the plot gets foiled because that would be a cool spectacle, even though it's horrible and there would be carnage, whatever. You know, as a kid, you want to see things blow up. Michael Bay has no compunction about that. And by the way, Dingus, that's a perfectly healthy thing. You know, we it's safe to experience carnage in a movie theater. It doesn't really happen, so I, I'm completely with you on that thing about Black Sunday. In Armageddon, every now and then, just, just for the heck of it, just to keep you busy from time to time, in Armageddon, he just trashes a city. You know, no, yes. he trashes one city, Paris. Nope, and that's nope. It. Kelly Wand, do you, want to make a, do you want me to make some money off of you? Because I will. I will bet you three cities get trashed in Armageddon. First, New York, then some Asian city. I don't even think it's specified. And That's then finally, and then finally Paris. And Wait, is that, that what it says on screen? Some Asian city. No, and then Billy- it also says, <laughs> and then finally Paris. <laughs> well, no, Billy Bob Thornton does say something about. It, it's my fault for not paying closer attention, but there is definitely shots of, and these happen at very different points in the movie because he wants to keep things snappy. Uh, so every now and then he just blows up a city. 
so it starts off, of course, with New York. You remember that? That's famous. And that's weird watching that scene, by the way, because I, I'd remember that there was this this shot of New York City with smoke rising, and you could see the the trade the Twin Towers ruined as well. Um, but during that scene, when things were blowing up, they have the wacky scene where the, the the New York cab driver who has the Japanese tourists in the back, you know, he's commenting on the action and he's saying things like, "Yeah, stuff is blowing up. We got to get out of here." And, and you know, the, the Japanese tourists are all confused. So he says at one point, it's the terrorists. Saddam Hussein is attacking us. Ah, see? I was like, wow. And, you know, this caused 9-11. Is what this I mean. was pre-9-11. It was pre-invasion of Iraq, of course. Saddam Hussein never attacked us. But what weird little bits to get in the movie. That's why everyone thinks that he did. Is <laughs> Michael Bay. Yeah. He was on the news, honey. That's why the Bush administration, yeah, capitalized okay. on that. But anyway, the point being that he's not above this sort of grisly appealing to that that boyish sensibility of, hey, wouldn't it be cool if cities blew up and thousands of people died? And you even see, by the way, uh, you know, there's a shot of the top of the Empire, it's either the Chrysler Building or the Empire State Building, there's a shot of a famous building falling down towards the camera, and there are bodies falling in front of it. He's not shy, and Kelly Wan, you should appreciate this, because you're always complaining about safe, you know, uh, sort of sanitized... Safe, sanitized, yeah, pre-9-11 violence. Uh, All, you know, you see people getting killed uh, in in Armageddon. falling towards the camera. And splatting. You see see a body splatting on a taxi cab. You see uh, in the comic relief with Eddie Griffith. Jason Statham survived that, but go on. With Eddie Griffith, and he's he's having some fight with a, a big old huge um, Polynesian man who's selling Godzilla paraphernalia. One of the one of the uh, meteorite bits kills the the Polynesian dude. Um, so yeah, this is like way pre-sanitized violence. Wow. My, Michael Bay is not above having thousands of people die because it would look cool. So there or you go. At least one Polynesian dude and some CG. And all of Paris. Fifty thousand. First of all, they do say fifty thousand people killed in the Asian city. Uh, it's Shanghai or something <laughs> like that. And when you see Paris, I mean, it, it's it's a, it, it turns Paris into a freaking crater. Huh. So what do you think of that? So Dingus, wow. if, if Michael Bay had directed Black Sunday, you would have gotten the blimp to explode like you wanted. Uh, that's a good point. It, unfortunately, it would have happened in the first couple of minutes, and it would have been inconsequential to the plot of Black Sunday. Nope, there would have been multiple blimps exploding over multiple Super Bowls. Thank you for making my point. <laughs> but you're right. He he provided me with the movie I wanted, thanks to you. Well, let's see what Kelly Wan has to top that. <laughs> I wanted to do if Michael Bay had made Deep Impact, but I couldn't imagine what that would look like. <laughs> little fun uh my number two is uh quanascotzi <laughs> it would have been exactly the same but he would have considered the ending a happy ending huh <laughs> uh do you care to elaborate i do not remember the ending of quanascotzi did, did it have a sad ending yeah all right. <laughs> but happy ending if Michael Bay had directed it. What do you think of that, Dingus? I don't remember the ending of Quanascotzi, so... My, I guess my life is out of balance. Right. Remember, I saw AI after, uh, like, three weeks after 9-11 to help me cope with it. And then there's a part where the World Trade Center is in the ice at the beginning of that movie. And it totally took me out of the movie. 
Did you stand up and protest? No. All right. Uh, Dingus, what is your number two pick for a movie that would be better when Michael Bay were to direct it? Tom, did I mention that I think Black Sunday is a brilliant choice? Uh, because you had to listen to Kelly Wan pick Koyana Scotsy. Yep. <laughs> Wait to hear my number one. <laughs> oh, I, I tremble. <laughs> All right, here's a quote from my number two. All right. Uh, Shakespeare in the Park. I don't think that's a good line reading, though. I don't think he says well, it like a question. You do it. Mm. Yo, Shakespeare in the Park. You. What is this, Shakespeare in the Park? <laughs> Are you wearing your mother's drapes? <laughs> uh, I almost picked scenes from this, but go ahead. So what? what's the movie, and how much better would it have been if Joss Whedon had not directed it and instead had let Michael Bay take over? I hear a lot of crap about Joss Whedon not being a good action director, um, but this, uh, this particular scene in The Avengers uh, Assemble, uh, is the forest fight, which I absolutely loved. And you can tell everybody who's fighting everybody, partly because every now and then you get to go up to where Loki is sitting and watching the whole thing, and you get to see his perspective. Uh, but I just, I love the way this fight shakes out. I love the CG trees in it. I think the whole thing works perfectly, and I just think it's a fight. I, I like fights where you can tell who is fighting and who's getting punched and what trees are falling and who's in danger. So that that forest fight is one of the is was one of this and the in my number one are are fifty fifty on what made me decide to go with this topic. Um, this one more, this one is the the pure action sequence and I really like the way Joss Whedon directs this. I I like the way the whole thing plays out. So I almost picked the Avengers as my you know, if Michael Bay had directed this he would have trashed entire cities. There wouldn't have been like he, he he kind of manhandled New York at the end there, but I think it would have been manhandled much more graphically, and Kelly Wan would have enjoyed the manhandling of New York City much more if Michael Bay had been directing. I'm always pro manhandling, <laughs> <laughs> but but New York takes a beating at the end there, but it's one of those sanitized PG-13 beatings, wouldn't you say, Kelly Wan? Oh yeah. Wait, is that the scene he's talking about? No, no. Dingus was talking about the wood scene, but that's what I was thinking of. Like before I brought up the Black Sunday thing. Like, uh, New York would have had much more violence done to it during the, the fight at the end if Michael Bay had directed. And you know what? You know, my, my argument with Mark, Michael Bay isn't the meteors hitting huge cities and the CG, like, trashing of Paris. It's, right. it's like, the, the, like, the first time I remember this is watching uh, The Rock and, and watching the car chase with that huge yellow Humvee, I think it was. And I couldn't tell what the fuck was going on. And bad, isn't that a Bad Boys one? No, I think it was I think it was okay. a yellow Humvee running through the city, the streets of, of San Francisco in the Rock. Oh, okay, uh, right, right. There's also that, a Humvee in Rio de Janeiro in one of the Bad Boys movies. I think. Oh, okay, okay. But I, I just remember watching Humvee. watching that and thinking, what the heck is going on? And feeling that way through the whole movie uh, of the Rock, and being really excited to see that because it was a huge summer movie, and I was excited right. to see the movie. And I just I was. I was constantly frustrated watching The Rock because, like, what the heck's going on? What car is that? I, I see the bottom of a car. I, I don't know what the hell's going on. And I didn't understand at that point this this new MTV quick-cutting thing that Michael Bay was going to be doing that, we, that he would be doing forevermore. And so what I'm talking about is more is like, 
fights and action sequences. Right. I totally get what you're saying about his ability to destroy huge cities, because every time you say that, I see in my head those meteors coming down and going through the Chrysler building or whatever that that iconic building is in New York. And you're right about that. Now, let me, by the way, just make clear. I am not defending Michael Bay's work on anything other than Armageddon. I cannot stand <laughs> his other movies. I am sure that Transformers, he, he you know, handles with kid gloves, any citywide that destruction. Handles. I am not, none of that applies here. I'm strictly defending his work in Armageddon. Uh, and by the way, you know what, Dingus, so I, I did rewatch Armageddon this week because I'm happy to rewatch that at any opportunity. There are some pretty lucid action sequences there, and I Specifically, I'm thinking of one where they go to the Russian, to the, is it the International Space Station, or maybe just some Russian space station. Well, there's a Russian there. I think it's the International Space Station. They have to go there to refuel. And something goes wrong where it's going to blow up. It's a Michael Bay movie. Of course it's going to blow up. And what he has to establish is who is escaping to which space shuttle and who is closest and who is farthest from the door and where the fire is. And he actually does a very good job with the sense of place on this space station using some of the, you know, there's a lot of that quick cutting and just characters running down corridors. But he does this thing where the NASA headquarters, you know, when when things start blowing up on the space station, Billy Bob Thornton calls up, give me the uh, personal locator on the space station schematics. And they show a wireframe display of the space station with dots for all the different characters. And how, <laughs> it's like how close they are to escaping. Uh, so he's, it's sort of like he provides a cheat sheet around the quick cuts so you know how close Ben Affleck is to being fatally incinerated. Uh, so he didn't get the biggest dot because he's the lead. <laughs> no, the dots, that was not part of his contract. He did get bigger teeth, though, and that's a true story. He, <laughs> Michael Bay thought that his teeth were like too small and weaselly, so he got these like weird big hue, and they're 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 blinding, they're enormous. It's it's a little distracting. He has these big fake white teeth in Armageddon. What? Really? He got bigger teeth? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That is awesome. Why not just hire someone who has big teeth, like Richard Branson? Don't think he would have been as big of a box office draw. Or Denzel Denzel Washington. Denzel Washington. Washington has awesome teeth. Mm, they already had a token black in the movie. I'm sorry. Oh. Tom. What? He's Michael? Saying. What? <laughs> Wait, which one? Um, <laughs> Michael Michael Clark Duncan oh, playing Bear. Yeah. Oh, uh, that's why Dingus is mad at you. No, I'm mad because he just had a heart attack. Right. right. So Wait, Tom what? Kidd. Who did? Who did? Michael uh, Clark Duncan? Oh, now I feel awful. You're an asshole. Really if you am. can't put on again on your list anymore. But wait, no, I was oh. speaking. I was speaking. Oh God, that was terrible of me. No, no, no you were speaking rhetorically. It's okay. Yeah, I love him in that movie though. He he does. There's some uh, a little Michael Clark Duncan beefcake, uh, where he's like posing in speed in a speedo. So if you're interested in seeing that Kelly Wand, Armageddon is your movie. Uh, Magic Mike, but with <laughs> space more. Uh, all right, so where are we? Uh, can't remember. Dingus is number. Two pick was the uh, tree scene. He he feels that uh, Michael Bay would have done a much better job with it. Is that is that yep. what you is that where we are? <laughs> Absolutely. The tree scene. <laughs> the scene with the trees. <laughs> the end. It's the scene for the end. Uh, all right. Here's my number one pick. <laughs> Excuse me. This is gonna have a mild spoiler. It's for an old movie though. Uh, if Mike or uh, Michael Bay had directed Running Scared, Paul Walker would have died at the end. Oh, thanks, asshole. 
<laughs> Nobody who hasn't seen it by now is going to see this movie. Uh, I love this I movie. I know Billy Dick. Crystal lives. No, not that running scared. Uh, Dingus loves this movie, too. However, it's, it pulls its punches at the end. It, it can't do what it wants you to think it's doing. It, it can't kill the hero. So they shot... I mean, just stop watching uh, Running Scared like five minutes before it ends, and you'll be better off. Uh, and the reason that I say if Michael Bay had directed Running Scared, he would have seen this through to the end. Armageddon is shot full of people making heroic sacrifices. Uh, all the way down to the very ending. Including their teeth. <laughs> <laughs> But Bruce Willis dies saving the Earth, and it's not this, like, Steven Spielberg War of the Worlds thing where, oh, he's okay at the end. We need a happy ending. He's dead. He's dead for good. And as a matter of fact, several, I've forgotten this. Owen Wilson freaking dies in uh, in Armageddon. How sad is that? Can you do a Liv Tyler line reading about her dad? Uh, I'm not sure. You know... So I don't think that that line ex- – I think that's like a play it again, Sam, line. Mm-hmm. I don't think she ever says – is it where she's supposed to say, that's my daddy? Like, Is that what you're talking about, Dingus? Yeah. What? I don't think she ever really says that. She says at one point, that's my family up there. Uh, she says at another point, there's a that's my daddy line for Will Patton's little kid. Uh, but I don't think – because I was looking for that. I don't think she ever says that. And there are times where she like says something particularly strident about it being her family. But if I'm, not, if, I'm not, uh, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I don't think there's a that's my daddy line. Right. I think it's a I that's my said family. That's my dad. Right. I think it's I think it's a I think she says family. You know what? Maybe I just wait. What does she say enough. that in response to something like, well, we got both. There's, there's a couple of things. It's where uh, they're going to take off the shuttle and leave Bruce Willis behind. Um, oh, and by the way, there's a great scene. So here's how thoughtful Michael Bay is at directing a movie with a father father daughter relationship. When Billy Bob Thornton and Liv Tyler are getting the briefing, or no, when Bruce Willis and Liv Tyler are getting the briefing from Billy Bob Thornton about how the asteroid the size of Texas and it's going to hit the Earth and everybody's going to die, there's a shot under the table of of Liv Tyler reaching over and taking her father's hand. So very much like the end of Margaret. Ugh. What do you think of that, Kelly Wand? I hate you right now. <laughs> when he said it's the size of Texas, did he mean like just the surface area or like all the way? So down? here's the joke. Here's the joke, and it's one of the many brilliant bits in Armageddon. They're talking. <laughs> they're talking to the to the president, and yeah. they've just had the little meteor shower. Where Who's the president, Morgan Freeman, right? You know what? No, they got some no name actor who. It's a terrible casting choice for president. Kathy Bates. Uh, they're they're talking to the president, and New York has just been peppered by the little meteorites. And they're explaining to the president, you know, these are just little meteorites that have hit us. There's a bigger one coming, and the president says, "Well, how much bigger is this one?" And one of the techs stands up and starts to say, uh, "It's got a, a, a you know a square mileage area of like 330." And Billy Bob Thornton cuts him off and says, "It's the size of." Texas, <laughs> like like no numbers. The president's too dumb to understand numbers. He needs some co- conceptual thing like the size of a state. He doesn't know all the states either. Like it's probably the size of Pennsylvania. But they go, well, he's from Texas, so Kelly I'll wanted say Texas. No, it's the biggest state. Come on, a, a, a meteor. No, Alaska is. No, a meteor doesn't count. Melts. Doesn't count. A meteor the size of of say Maryland hitting the United States, hitting the world. No Not big impressed. deal. That's, Who that's cares? the one that hits right. Paris, I thought, is the Who, Maryland. 
Right, who cares? Exactly. Nobody's going to care about that. One, the size of Texas. In Alaska, you can't say because people don't appreciate the size of Alaska from looking at the size of Hawaii. Yeah, it doesn't count. Uh, <laughs> the size of the North Pole. And so that that whole thing that you know people people like bring up lines from Armageddon as if they're poorly written, but that Texas line is great. That line about we need the world's best deep core drillers is awesome and self-aware. How goofy it is! It's a great line. Yep. Well, the problem is that everything that you just said sounds yeah. like it came from a trailer, and that's what everybody's quoting. What is lines from the trailer? Yeah, the, all those all those lines that you that uh, and, I, and I agree with you. All those lines that you say people bring up as uh, examples of bad writing are things that they would have pulled from a trailer, because they all sound like trailer lines. Size of Texas. Those all sound like trailer lines. That's the problem. Do you guys know that Tony Gilroy wrote the script for Armageddon? Oh, don't say that. Stop. Stop talking. If you guys don't like Tony Gilroy, if you don't like the Bourne Identity movies, then maybe you're not ready for Armageddon. Doesn't Charlton Heston say some shit? Yep. At the end? Charles, so here's another thing that, that Michael Bay is brilliant at. He He's not only going to trash cities over the course of the movie, he's going to open the movie by just trashing the entire Earth. So, and, and he's going to have Charlton Heston narrate it. So yeah, Charlton Heston narrates this visualization he does of the meteorite that hits the Earth and makes the dinosaurs extinct. <laughs> so That's not trashing the Earth. It's trashing the dinosaurs, but the Earth's great. No, it trashes the Earth. It says it, it uh, you know, it, it covers it in like. Charles Heston goes, "The Earth's been trashed by dinosaurs." <laughs> he uses he uses scientific terminology. Yeah, because Charles Heston's a scientist, we respect his authority. <laughs> well, on you, meteorology. You've, you've seen Omega Man. You know what he's capable of. Yeah, I do. So he's a he didn't survive that movie, and he didn't survive Armageddon. I've actually never seen Omega Man. So, ah, oh, dude, it's dumb. I'm sure that if Michael Bay directed it, it would Did you be see Soylent Green? Yes. Yes. Uh, with, er- with Ernest Borgnine. Yeah, it's good. Uh, all right, so the, actually it's not Ernest Borgnine, is it? Who plays this little sidekick? G. Robinson? Yeah, 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 uh, exactly. One Ernest, of those old guys. Or Ernest Borgnine. What? I suppose you're going to tell me he had a heart attack, too? No, but he died this week. <laughs> I know, I do feel bad. Tom giggled. <laughs> Did anybody die uh, this week? You're not going to mock Tom? God. Uh, only Paul Walker. Uh, running scared. Uh, we all agree, or at least the two of us who've seen the movie agree that that should have happened. So I don't necessarily agree with your premise that uh, Michael Bay would have made that happen, but I agree well, that it should have. Right. And in a theme, though, of Armageddon, and I say this, I am not being ironic. And by the way, when I'm talking about liking Armageddon, none of this is being facetious. An unironic theme of Armageddon is heroic sacrifice. Yeah, and and he he does have the guts to see it through by not having this last minute. Oh, he didn't really die, so there you go. Yeah, but the earth so, didn't really die. So this is going to be a stupid, <laughs> a stupid and weird question, but does Armageddon use that in a jingoistic way? You know, I've heard people say that there's a lot of American flags and it, there's a lot of rah rah. You know, there's uh, there's uh, it does the typical thing where it lionizes blue-collar workers over scientists, and then it lionizes scientists over the ineffectual government. So it's not necessarily this blind trust or love of America. And furthermore, it does have all these scenes of people around the world reacting to 
the meteorite with fear and you know the, uh, Peter Stormari. Peter Stormari is actually instrumental in helping them. I forgot this, but he he survives and he helps Ben Affleck. Like he's one of the guys who saves everyone, and he's the crazy Russian. Um, so it's he turns a crank if I recall correctly. I think, uh, among other things, yeah. Though well, you know what he does. So in order for them to escape the asteroid at the end, uh, the the female pilot is down there trying to look at the components, and he's like, "No, I show you how we do this in Russia." And he he whacks the machine with a wrench, and that fires the engine back up again. Hmm. That's and that's, that's heroic sacrifice. Well, he's not doing the heroic sacrifice. Stuff. Like, there, there's a scene where they all have to draw straws for Pete's sake. Come on. How moving is that? Because they need to drink something? No, who's going to stay behind and detonate the bomb? Yeah, and then Ben Affleck is going to die, and I get excited. Right? Right? He's going to cheat. And what happens? Right, but what happens? Bruce Willis dies because I'm supposed to be sadder if Ben Affleck would die? No, no. Bruce Willis, uh, so Ben Affleck draws the straw, Bruce Willis takes him down, he says, I'll take him down, I'll say goodbye to him. He pulls the air hoses off of his spacesuit so that he can't breathe, and he throws him back in the elevator and closes the airlock door so he can't come out. Isn't that after Ben Affleck takes the teeth out of his mouth and goes, here, I think you're going to need these. And Ben Affleck says, no, I have to do this, it's my job. And Bruce Willis says, and here's a little dialogue from Tony Just Gilroy. Take care. Taking care of my daughter, <laughs> yes. No, your job now is, yeah, taking care of my little girl. Because that's like work. <laughs> uh, by the way, if Michael Bay had done any other sex scene, it would have involved animal crackers, and it would have been really awkward and and gross and weird, and it would have had Ben Affleck doing a bad Australian accent. What? That, that part that part of Armageddon, I freely acknowledge, is terrible. He's got this like supposed to be this sexy scene with Liv Tyler. Yeah, I he, remember the Australian accent though. Yeah, he's making uh, uh, two animal crackers walk around on her tummy, right. and he's like narrating it like it's a wildlife show. And for whatever reason, he's doing it in an Australian ac- accent. And he's you know, saying, I, I made a joke about this earlier. I always think they're sugar packets. They're animal crackers? Oh, I wondered what you meant about throwing sugar packets. Yeah, he's they're animal crackers. And he even starts with this little Tarantino-esque thing, where, or maybe it's Michael Bay's idea of a Tarantino-esque thing, where he's like... Should they really be called crackers because they're sweet and the defining characteristic of a cracker is that you have cheese with it and you'd never have cheese with an animal cracker? It's awful. It's terrible. And then he makes them walk around on her tummy and he has this little thing about is the gazelle going to run into the ample hills of the north? And he moves it up towards her crest. And then he says, or is it going to move to the luscious valleys of the south? And he, like, slides the animal Where cracker. Where the bushmen live. <laughs> he doesn't go that far. But he slides <laughs> the animal cracker under, to help. under the little elastic band of her, her panties. Oh. Wait, he's going to put cookie crumbs down in there? That seems kind of lame. He's going to get cookie crumbs in her cooch. Milk. It's better than lava. By the way, uh, just listening to Tom talk about Tony Gilroy as the writer of this, it's hilarious to actually look at the writing credits with an eye toward what Tom said. What? His name is on the credits is all I'm saying. Shut up. Yeah. Yeah, it is. But just just go ahead and click on writing credits and see what it actually says. You know, Dingus, all of those are contractually, they involve negotiations between the studios and there's a lot of prestige games and none of that matters. Uh All you need to know is that Tony Gilroy is one of the writers of Armageddon. He's part of Yeah, go ahead. That's awesome. He wrote the Australian part. Now, do you like him? How does that make you feel? Uh, I also hate the fact, because I didn't remember this, J.J. Abrams' name is on it, too. As a what? And Jonathan Hensley. 
I don't know who that uh, is. Who is that, Dingus? Wait, wait, wait. I'm afraid to ask. Who is Jonathan? No, no, wait. Hanks? I thought it was Battle LA, but I think I'm wrong. No, it's not. That's that's Lieberman. Joseph Lieberman. No, no, no it's Perelman or something. Who's this Hensley dude? Yeah. Why is, um, he, why is he taunting us about it? Why does he just tell us who it is? <laughs> the Punisher next. Yeah, but he's not. Uh, it's more important that, that Tony Gilroy was a, a huge creative input on what makes Armageddon so good. That's all I'm saying. If, if you like, if you like Born Supremacy, you'll probably like Armageddon. It's Armageddon. <laughs> Sorry, I stepped on. All right, Kelly One, what is your number one pick for a movie that would be so much better if Michael Bay had directed it? Uh, you kind of fucked mine up, but that's cool. Wait, do I, I have to go first, or does Kelly go? Uh, yeah, Kelly you go. Right. Yeah, your your last thing is because it was your pick. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, it's punishment for having the topic picked. <laughs> My number one is Requiem for a Dream. If Michael Bay had directed it, uh, Jared Leto would have grown an extra arm, and Ellen Burstyn would have been on the juice thing and become the head of Sony, and Jennifer Connelly would have gone ass-to-ass with a motorcycle, and Marlon Wayans would have been Will Smith, but when he's turning butter at the end, it would have been in slow motion and in front of American flags. All right, there you go. But luckily, that didn't happen. <laughs> Dingus, what is your number one pick for a movie that would be better if Michael Bay had directed it? It's not a movie. It's just a scene. Or a film. Oh, a scene. Right. Okay. Just I'm or just going with one particular scene. It's not a, the whole movie. Kelly Wan did a whole movie just now. That's what threw me. He's gay. Right. I mean, blind. <laughs> All right, here's the here's the uh here's a quote from this particular scene. <laughs> no, it's not the not artist. The quote my my son just said. All right, here's the quote. Pull my finger. Mm. Australian accent, so we know it's Armageddon. No, I think that was his Michael Caine. That's my Michael Caine. And the scene in question from Children of Men directed by Alfonso Cuarón is the scene where Jasper, played by Michael Caine, is executed. And and this is uh, 50% of what made me choose this topic. Um, because when... I, man, I love this scene. When you're, when you're watching the scene from... The, the scene is shown from Theo's perspective almost completely. Um, there's a couple of cuts to look at Theo's reactions to what's going on, but... Uh, but Alfonso Cuaron never moves in on the scene at all. It's all up from up on the hill behind a tree where Theo is watching what um, what Jasper is going through. And Jasper comes out of his hut. And this is such a weird moment for me because I watched this again recently. And it had been a couple years since I'd watched the whole thing. And when Jasper comes out and does that whole pull my finger thing and then he says, I'll pull it myself. I had this weird thing of like, oh, their house, their trailer behind him is going to explode, mm. which it's totally stupid if you've ever seen Children of Men. But I think my it? my consciousness, it wouldn't. But if he had rigged the thing to explode to take out all of the rebels so that they could all escape that would have been a thing that would happen. I pull my finger and that explodes. But that's not really what I'm going for here. It's the, it's the idea that we don't get any quick cuts into the the shots when he's being shot. 
Um, we don't get any quick cuts into his face. It's just all from far back behind this tree where Theo is watching him. And, um, and I, I just, when I watched Children of Men again, I don't know why this happened, but when I thought it, I just, I watched it and I thought, boy, this could have really been ruined. This scene of the guy watching this happen from far away where the, where his best friend is being killed. I think there was a marked lack of explosions in Children of Men. Early on, it's it fools you into thinking lots of stuff is going to blow up, and then it doesn't happen. Because you get that great explosion early yeah. on, where's the rest That's of That's a good it? point. That's a very good point. And it's not even a good fireball explosion. Yeah, exactly. Where's all the fire? They need to CG that in. Yep. So instead of long cuts, long single shots, it would have been not long single shots. It would have been shots of his face and, and him goofing around and getting shot and his finger getting blown off and you seeing his finger getting blown off and then uh, a shot and a squib of his knee getting shot and then another shot of him getting shot in the head or whatever. But it's all instead from long shot of Theo's perspective. Hmm. It's a little unfair because I'm choosing a really great movie directed by a great a director I really like. So there you go. Children of Men. Let's move on. All right. You guys ready for next week's 3x3? Yes. I think so. I think I'm bunting because I don't really have anything in mind. I'm curious what you guys come up with, and maybe I'll think of something over the week. But I don't, I don't really have anything. It's just topical. So here you go. We're in the middle of July. Uh... I want your three best uses of summer in a movie. And that can mean anything, because, you know, in move some school's out, summer's hot, there's some holidays, what have you. So it has to be something specific to summer. It has to be in the movie, and uh, just see what you come up with. And it so, has to be the best. <clears throat> topical, the best. Don't, Kelly Wan, pick the worst or middling uses of summer. We want really <laughs> good uses of summer in this 3x3. Three three. No winter, no autumn, and uh, no what's uh, spring. Can all mine be from a Mark Webb movie? Oh yeah, no, that's not. It can't be can about five hundred. <laughs> it can't be about a character. It can't be about a character named Summer. Well, since Use Kelly this. said that, it, can it be something that's wet and hot? If that wet yeah, hot yeah. thing is Summer, yes. All right. Yes. If it's someone named Summer, no. No, right, good. Not at all. Is it Summer in Armageddon when all the guys are sweating? Or is that unrelated to? The they're just they're just nervous because an asteroid the size of Texas is about to hit planet Earth in the middle of summer, which is the worst time for that to happen. I don't think they did. I don't think there's a title card with a date or anything. Is Billy Bob Thornton a scientist? No, no, he, so I don't know if you guys remember this. Billy Bob Thornton's character has polio. Like he's wearing a leg brace. What? Ah. Yeah, did you guys remember that? Like he's, and that's why, and he can't be an astronaut. Like all his life, he wanted to go out into space, but he couldn't because of his condition. Your so, sacrifice. Why didn't you choose this for disabilities then? Because I forgot. Uh, and Bruce Willis, when he sacrifices himself, rips the mission patch off of his uniform, puts it in Ben Affleck's pocket, and says, "Here, give this to Billy Bob Thornton." Oh jeez. <laughs> And so Billy Bob Thornton gets his mission patch at the end of the movie, even though he didn't go out into space. Don't they have more important things to worry about than that fucking decal? Kelly Wan, it's a token. It's a, it's an, it's a, running on time. It's point. a token of heroic sacrifice. Like the token black character you referred to? No, he was. Yeah, he was. It was instrumental to the plot. Uh, instrumental to. Okay. All right. Wait. What? Oh. Wait, when they jump the dune buggy, is that heroic? Right. Okay, it's not a dune buggy, first of all. Uh, it's a moon buggy. 
it's a, it's a summer buggy. Uh, Second of all, it has it, it begins with a great line where Ben Affleck gets this idea to do it, and he says to Peter Stormari, "Have you ever heard of Evil Knievel?" Uh, now, do you know? No, wait, it's not done. The scene isn't over yet. Crap. Because hold crap on, writing. no, no, hold on. Tony Gilroy has written another line in this scene. There is a response. <laughs> and the response is Peter Stormari saying, I never saw the Star Wars movies. <laughs> what do you think of that, Kelly Wand? Do you um, love that scene now? Isn't that scene awesome now? So they do two pop culture references. Oh, many more than that. You're right. There's also the thing where uh, Owen Wilson is talking about how he wouldn't be Chewbacca, you know, where they're talking about what characters they would be yeah. in Star Wars. There's plenty He's of pop culture. He's the C-3PO. Uh, I think they're arguing over who would be him solo. But no, there's, there's, uh, Armageddon does not shy away from pop culture. It does not try to be timeless. Armageddon is a product, a product of its time. Harrison Ford had huge teeth. <laughs> not as big as Ben Affleck's. According to Carrie Fisher. <laughs> All right, so next week we will be doing uh, 3 by 3 of Best Uses of Summer. And speaking of Best Uses of Summer, we will be seeing uh, Dark Knight Rises. Uh, I, I can't mean, stand yeah, how you yeah. said that. What? How I said it's it or a- how Kelly said it? How you said it was so dismissive. I think it's going to yeah. be awful. what? What? I know, we're going to see another crappy superhero movie. I'm sure. My my hope is that it's not as bad as Spider Man. It won't be as funny as Spider Man. That'll be serious and long and lame. Maybe it'll be funny. I don't care about Bane. I think he's after my time. I like the wrestler kind of guy. So you're kind of like Romney in that regard. Ah. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Uh, all right, so uh, three by three, best uses of summer. Dark, uh, here you go, Dingus. Dark Knight Rises. We'll be and the that. Huntsman. Uh, the Huntsman. Snow White. Oh. And the Huntsman. Uh, there's a movie called The Hunter with Willem Dafoe. I thought that's what you were talking about, but no, we're not seeing that. Uh, join us for that. I am Tom Chick. I have been joined by Christian uh, Malinsky. Is it? It's Christian Malinsky. It's pretty much what I said. Uh, and Kelly Wand. Uh, Thelma Louise, the car would fly at the end, but in his grease, it would not fly. Michael Bay. Wish I was on the cold medicine Tom was on for the last two hours. And Michael Bay was on. <laughs> what do you made Armageddon? Brainwashed Tom. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. I'm so happy Tom did that. It's In a way. Well, directors usually. It's totally brave what Tom did. When? He defended Michael Bay for an hour and a half. Awesome. I know. I know. I wish a half hour of that would get cut by Michael Lonergan. Don't. Kenneth. <laughs> Kenneth Lonergan, sorry. Michael Caine, Kenneth Lonergan. If he remade Margaret, the bus would have turned into a robot? Come on, Kelly, you can't be smoking a J on the way to a podcast.